A successful city requires energetic and forward-thinking men and women, leading vibrant businesses. This is Heart of the City, Business Edition. This is Heart of the City Business Edition. My name's Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Operations, and I have a guest that I'm really excited about having a conversation today. His name is Oris Dunham, Jr. He's managing partner at the Dunham Group uh, here in Bellevue. But, uh, Oris, welcome to Heart of the City. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I, I have a, a uh, re- your resume here that uh, we could spend five minutes talking about. You were... Uh, in 1972, uh, you were part of the uh, uh, 10-year career in aviation-related engineering and sales, and you joined the Port of Seattle in 72 and operated the uh, SeaTac Airport, uh, became the director of aviation in 1981. Um, you worked in Los Angeles as in the uh, Department of Airports, uh, which operated LA International. Uh, chairman of the Airport Association's Coordinating Council, the AAC, AACC. Uh, one other thing interested, the, uh, September 1st, 1991, joined and was appointed the first director general of the Airport Council uh, based in Geneva, Switzerland, which uh, represented the world's airports in the International Civil Aviation Organization so you got a long resume and probably a lot of other things that you've done. And uh, I love aviation, so I love the conversation. So tell me, what does a general manager or a director of an airport do? Well, you're really just like the mayor of a city. I mean, the police department, the fire department, the maintenance department all report to you. You own all the property, and you lease everything out, uh, every gate, every place at airplane parks, every place uh, the, where the passengers go into the ticket counter, those are all leased. So what you do is really you're, you're a manager of a great facility and with the responsibility of the safety, security, and the well-being of that entire piece of property. Well, that's a huge job. I mean, just like you say, like the mayor of a city, so like a facility like SeaTac Airport, uh, how many acres would that be? Well, SeaTac isn't that large because we're landlocked. And, mm. and it's maybe, I think, I'm not sure, 3,200 acres or something like that. And L.A. is just not much larger than that. But then you go to a Dallas-Fort Worth, which has 25,000 acres. Wow, yeah. You know, it, it's larger than the island of Manhattan. Uh, of course, that's Texas. It had to be big. <laughs> of course. Well, you fly into uh, Dallas-Fort Worth and, you know, you taxi forever. And, and uh, once you get to the terminal, you know, just getting from one terminal to another can take you a long time. People movers. There, there are people movers. And and so, yeah, having been in those various airports, I don't think people realize what it takes to operate an airport. I'm sure they don't as far as all of the different systems and personnel and technology that's required. Well, it, it's interesting that anybody who's ever flown through an airport thinks they could run an airport. I mean, <laughs> and, and they would be happy to tell you that this is how they should do it. But it really is what it is. You know, it's not that I had such a great knowledge of everything, but I had great people. You know, I surrounded myself with people smarter than I was. And uh, they ran it. You know, you get a good properties guy who knows how to do the leases. You get a good 
You also need good attorneys. At DFW, I had seven attorneys sit down the hall from me. I mean, somebody wanted to sue me. I said, that's fine. Just, there's the line of attorneys. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the police department, uh, but every airport is different. You know, there's an old saying in our business. If you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport because everyone is different. They're operated differently. The ownership is differently, and that's what makes the big difference. A city airport is quite different, like Los Angeles, is quite different from a port of Seattle, uh, which operates this airport, and at Dallas-Fort Worth. It's an independent authority where the members are appointed by the city, but it's still a, a separate authority that the city has no control over except to appoint the board members. So every one of them is different. Uh, there are some that are run by the state. Baltimore, Washington, is what, BWI is run by the state authority. So when you do it, there's different parts that you have to respond to. Some places, L.A., the fire department's part of, is really part of the city fire department, whereas here it's part of the airport part. You know, we run it uh, at Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, interestingly enough, there the police and fire were co-trained. They, they were mixed. We could do either one. The police departments had their firefighting gear in the trunk of the car. Uh, so everyone that you go to, is quite different, except they do one thing and they do it well, is they move passengers through it. Yeah. So you're a five-year-old kid and somebody says to you, Oris, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you say, I want to run airports. I mean, what? how did you get motivated to run, uh, to be a general manager, a director of an airport? Believe it or not, I saw the movie Airport. I was I, I was working for Fairchild Camera Instruments selling flight control systems. I designed, I'd worked for Bill Lear designing flight control systems. Went with Fairchild, and in the late 60s, 68, 69, I saw the movie Airport, the original one, uh, with Burt Lancaster. Oh, yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, there's something I might like to do. And I, we moved up back up to Seattle. I'd been here working with Fairchild and, and Boeing. And I moved back up uh, from the headquarters of Fairchild in, in California. And I talked my way in to see Don Shea, who was the airport director. And I said, do you have a training program? And he said, no. I said, can we set one up? And so for the next, we did. And for the next 13 months, 20 hours a week, I worked at different parts of the airport for no pay. Luckily, my wife was a teacher. And so they finally said, we're going to put a night operation supervisor on. We want you to apply for it. I did. And eight years later, when Don retired, I took his job. Wow. So that's how I got started. Believe it or not, it was my wife was there. And she, will, she will agree. I saw the movie. And a, and a great story about that. When I was in Los Angeles, my board chairman was Johnny Cochran, the, the famous Johnny Cochran. And he knew this story, and he asked me to meet him for lunch one day. And I went to lunch in Beverly Hills and walked in and he's sitting there with Burt Lancaster and he said that he had told the story to him and he wanted to meet the guy that had decided to a career because of the movie and uh, so you got oh wow yeah I mean I here I am I walk in and here's Johnny Cochran who's pretty famous by himself and then Burt Lancaster and everybody's looking and who is this guy coming <laughs> over and sitting at this table wow yeah. well that would be that would be fun so You've run SeaTac Airport. You've run uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. And four airports in Los Angeles. I was the head of operations and administration for all of them. There was a director who, Cliff, was never there. And he and if, especially if there was going to be a problem, he would find himself out of town. Like if the mayor 
wanted something named after him. I got to go down with Johnny and explain to him why we shouldn't do it and then how we did do it. Uh, that's how the Bradley <laughs> Terminal came about. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, there it was an exciting time because we were rebuilding it for the Olympics. Uh, I went there in 82, 84 was the Olympics. We second leveled the roadway, uh, resurfaced one of the runways, redid the Sepulveda Tunnel, built two new terminals, including the International Terminal, and had everything open on time. That, well, the 84, that was a huge financial success, I know, for and, and uh, they run that they ran that really well, yeah. and it was well known for that. You could go, <clears throat> during the time of the Olympics, you could drive downtown in 10 minutes. I mean, it was the best traffic you've ever seen. <laughs> right. What's it like, or have you ever had the Air Force One come in uh, to one of your airports? Everything stops. I mean, it, it's in L.A. many times. Uh here, it didn't really come into SeaTac. I don't remember ever coming to SeaTac. But uh, in, in L.A., what happens is that all air traffic is stopped 20 minutes ahead. You have runway checks with the uh, Secret Service. There's no terminal activity. You keep everybody off the runway, off the taxiway. Uh, and for 20 minutes before he lands and after he lands, and you park him at some remote place and... Uh, that, but you, you have it down pat. I mean, this is something in L.A. We had Reagan coming in there, and it was kind of a standard thing to do. I mean, it wasn't really anything that unusual. Interesting, interesting. And um, so what does it um, – what are the common problems now regarding um, airports and what's going on right now with airports as far as – um, is it noise? Is it uh, environmental issues? What what are what are airports dealing with right now? Well, right now is a different time. Uh, up until a year ago, uh, noise has always been a problem. Uh, I just was going through some papers and found the thing from the Secretary of Transportation to me when we had negotiated the first PFC, Passenger Facility Charge, and noise regulations on the airlines. And this was back in the in the in the early 80s uh, or mid 80s uh, and now it, it's in the environment and, and there's some really problems with what they call PFAS which is one of the things that airports use is in their firefighting they use a, a chemical that puts out the fires the FAA requires it <clears throat> yet it's toxic and so there's a big big problem right now airports are dealing with trying to find out how who's responsible and they have to find a replacement for them. So that, that's a big problem. Today, it's entirely different. The problems at airports today are there are no passengers. We've dropped down <clears throat> to approximately 40% of what we were a year ago. And when you start thinking about you're running an airport that uh, is costing two, $300 million a year, and the money comes from concessions, Non-aeronautical revenues are concessions, parking, uh, rental cars, concessions where you buy food and everything, and there's nobody there to do that. And so they're all a lot of the concessions are shut down. A lot of them, sadly, are going out of business at some airports. The government has stepped up, and finally, on the thing that was passed just two weeks ago, there's some relief coming out, not just to the airports, but to the small concessionaires, which probably more than... 40% of them are all minority business owned. Right. And uh, so it's been, a, it's been a real disaster for them. And people just have to figure out a better way to do it. 
airports have learned a lot from this. I don't think airports will ever write a lease again the way they have in the past. At least they shouldn't. Uh, now, some are still doing it that way, and uh, I, I think it will come back to bite them in the, in the end. But for the most part, I think airports are much smarter now. If you'd asked me this, if we'd have been talking 16 months, 18 months ago, I would have said the biggest thing airports are doing are trying to find pa ways to make it convenient for the passenger. Passenger convenience. Better stores, better things to do, better places to buy food, better wines, whatever. Today, it's safety, safety, safety. Keep it safe. And if you look at all the stuff that the airlines and the airports are doing to keep COVID from being the problem of the airport. Well, having traveled uh, this last September, I flew back to mm -hmm. Illinois, and I, you know, uh, I'm not, I was uh, respectful but not fearful. You know, I understood that COVID was, uh, you know, obviously a potential. But what I noticed, obviously, was so many of the uh, concessions, like you spoke about, were closed down. There wasn't much going on. A few food courts were open. Um, you know, I flew through Chicago, and I also flew through Denver, actually, I, um, the, the way I went. And, um, you know, the planes were fine. I mean, it, it was, but it was definitely fewer people, yeah. no doubt about it. I think really today the, that you're as safe on an airplane and probably at the airport as you are anywhere else if the people are well, will wear their mask. If they don't, of course, you know that they just signed an order yesterday that on an airplane everybody will wear a mask. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. uh, and so that finally has come through. The other thing is a lot of the harassment of the staff on an airplane, the FAA administrator came out last week and no questions, no anything, $35,000 fine. Yeah. You're on. Yeah. Which should have been, I'm sorry they didn't do it earlier because these flight crews don't need that. No. They're under enough pressure right now. And, you know, at least the flight I was on, everyone was respectful. But I've been reading about some of the flights and where people have gotten pretty rowdy. And uh, you're right. The, the flight crew doesn't need that. The other passengers don't need it. Yeah. And uh, so apparently there's going to buckle down on that kind of thing. I, I think that what what will come back the quickest after we get the vaccinations out is tourism. Tourism is the biggest industry in the world. Uh, it Right now, if you look at the businesses, they won't come back as fast. The big ones will be slower. The little ones will probably come back close to the end of the year. But as soon as somebody gets their vaccination and there's a place to go that is open, there will be somebody on that airplane to go. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that tourism is the one. Of course, I tell everybody that aviation, uh, airports and airplanes are just part of the biggest business in the world, which is tourism. And uh, we do that everywhere. There, It's the most important thing to keep any place. I don't care where you are, any little town looks to how tourism is going to help. Seattle has got some problems on tourism, as you might know. You're right, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna hurt them for a while. I, I hope that they can come back, because uh, I know a lot of people have canceled conferences and and things like that in Seattle. Sure, sure. Well, you're listening to Heart of the City Business Edition, and uh, today we're speaking with Oris Dunham, and. Uh, 
and uh, Oris, talking about tourism, the, the way you and I uh, connected was I had an opportunity to uh, have a Zoom call with uh, an organization that you're a part of called S called SCAL, S-K-A-L. Tell me a little bit about that organization and uh, what you do. Well, it, it's one of the oldest tourism-related organizations in the world. It was started... Uh, in France with just a group of people that were traveling on business got together and now it's in virtually every country uh, thousands and thousands of people belong to it and what it is it's people that are in the tourism business and in our organization here in Seattle we have people from the airlines we have people from the hotels from the cruise lines uh, people like myself who are, are consultants into the aviation business and uh, what we do is try to promote tourism business and keep in contact all over the world. And it really is good if you belong because, as an example, I went to Greece. I contacted the Skull leader there in Athens, set us up with the hotels, set us by one of his members with a car rental, you know. And, and so it really is a fairly small group. Our membership here is probably only about a little over 20, but in L.A. it's about 40, and in, Cal in Florida and Miami I think it's... Uh, 150 but it really and it's and it's worldwide i was a member here in la even in geneva switzerland i had to sit by somebody that could interpret because they did it all in french but uh <laughs> it still was a very powerful organization there yeah so uh one of the things that i wanted to talk to you about and and uh, you were you were talking about how uh who owns the airports and uh, the fact that they can it can be uh, um, a city, it can be a county, it can be uh, some sort of a, a governmental organization that's a combination, kind of like what uh, uh, what SeaTac is owned by. Uh, is that Sound Transit or uh, no? SeaTac is owned by the Port of Seattle. Port of Seattle. That's Port that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, so there can be all kinds of different organizations. But uh, one of the things that's happened up at Payne Field. As far as the terminal is concerned, with commercial aviation going on up there, is a private um, terminal. It's a private, public, privately owned. Yeah, private public partnership. Yeah, is really what explain to me how that works and what you think about it. Well, I think it's a good idea in some places, uh, and and there's other places that do this similar thing where the airport doesn't really have the money or want to invest in something, and up. Believe me, Painfield was kind of a experiment. Although in 1970s we were looking where, how are we going to replace SeaTac or how are we going to take the load off? And it really at that time it was going to have to be things like Painfield and at, I would hope joint uh, something at McCord. But of course, then it became a joint base, and uh, we'll never do that. But think about an LA which has Burbank and Long Beach and Ontario and. And so you have to have reliever airports. We can't build another airport around here. I mean, where would you put it except probably east of the mountains? And then nobody's going to take a two-hour train ride out there to, or high-speed right. rail or something. San Diego just went through that a couple of years ago. I chair the advisory association board for the San Diego airport. And we were looking for another one and tried to get in with the military. They said no. And the only other one was like it would have cost about $3 billion to put a high-speed rail out to the desert. Uh, so that's why you're downtown. Very limited. One runway. It's open only, uh, you know, eight hours a night it's closed. 
So there are advantages to Painfield. I think Painfield is a great opportunity. Eventually, it will be a bigger opportunity. It will cause some problems with noise, as they always do, no matter where you are. Airplanes make noise. But people call the airport, and they would call me and say, you know, you're making noise. I'm not making noise. It's the airplane that's making noise. <laughs> well, having lived in Mukilteo, and I live uh, in Everett now, not too far from Painfield, I was literally living uh, back in the 90s about, I would say about 400 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards off the flight path on the approach coming in uh, from from the north, uh, right there by the 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 ravine there and i gotta tell you the planes coming in and taking off the commercial the the boeing jets coming in and out didn't bother me at all i mean they were very very quiet it was the general aviation planes that were much louder if you will the commercial jets especially the newer ones the 727s coming in and out were pretty noisy but they don't come in and out anymore well that's that's what is the it's evolved the the quieter 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 airplanes i mean that that has been the biggest change and if you look at the fr- footprint of a uh, of the 65 uh, zone of what you look at to try to keep your noise within and you and at SeaTac we bought land all of that there there was one fellow that we bought him three times he would we knew we were going to buy him. He'd buy a property just outside of where we were buying, and we we bought him three times as he kept moving out. But uh, you know, now those things are shrinking. Those those noise zones are shrinking simply because the airplanes are getting quieter. Uh, they definitely are. And you know, talking about coming out of Burbank, uh, of course, the uh, for those of us that have flown out of Burbank, you've got a pretty steep. Uh, angle of uh, of takeoff there for what three thousand feet or so right. for noise abatement, That's right? Right. Get it up and get it out. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of times, if someone's flying, uh, if a plane takes kind of a weird turn, or you know, you, you think, why are they doing this? Sometimes that's. It's what noise, it's for is for noise abatement. Noise abatement takeoff. Yeah. I, I took off out of uh, Washington National, right downtown, in a private Learjet, and. The guy, the pilot said, just sit back and hang on. And we went right down the runway, and he just went up almost straight up. Because <laughs> he had to get to 3,000 feet right away. Right away, right. Well, Oris, we've got about two minutes left, and I'd like to just wrap up. So as we're talking about the 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 airport uh, as an industry, uh, where where do you see it? Uh, do you see some, some more changes happening because of – these financial issues with COVID and how we're doing business uh, these days. What 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 do you expect on the horizon? Well, I think I don't think airports will ever do business again the way they have in the past because nobody was ever expecting something that would be this disastrous. We went through nine eleven and we thought that was a disaster. Well, that was a short term disaster, a few months. This one is going to make a big difference. They'll come back. I mean, and interesting enough, a lot of airports are moving ahead. During this time, Salt Lake built a new terminal, and it cost them probably about uh, 20 or $30 million less and had it done quicker because of COVID. And, and L.A. is doing that. SeaTac is, will finish this year their new international facilities, and they've been able to do it. They could, a lot of these could move it along because they'd already sold the bonds. They had the money, and this was a time to keep people employed. And so it, it's been really very positive in some ways as far as capital improvements. 
I, I do think that it will take a while. I think we probably won't see traffic back to the 2019 levels for another four years, sadly. Yeah. Well, it like I, I mentioned earlier, uh, I've traveled uh, by plane. I've already got my tickets to fly to the East Coast in June. Uh, you know, to see family, and uh, you know, I think uh, travel's an an important thing, and and hopefully we can all get back to normal here in the coming days. You've been listening to Heart of the City Business Edition. To hear a podcast of this interview, go to thewordseattle.com and click on Heart of the City Podcast.